to Manifesting, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides to this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the new novel Missionaries from Penguin Press. Our guest this week, Joseph Keegan, writer and editor at A Thwart and The Point magazine. And I, the knocker off of tall hats, Jacob Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Two outstanding choices, uh, two texts to shovel into the furnace this week, both of them exceptional. We've got The Authentic Reactionary by Nicholas Gomez de Villa. And for our art, my quarrel with Hirsch Reisner by Chaim Grade. Before I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Chaim Grade. Chaim Grade, Chame yeah. Grade. <laughs> yeah. If you want to fit in in Israel, you're going to have to get these things right. Yeah, Nick Gomes de Villa <laughs> yeah. and Chaim Grade. Um, speaking of fitting in, if you're listening, we want you to fit in. We don't want you to be left out at parties on the metro and social occasions where other people might judge you harshly for not supporting Manifesto a podcast efficiently. <laughs> in our once every 18 months um, plug for the show, we want you to go to our Patreon Sign up for our Patreon. We've got some great stuff coming out there. I'll be talking to none other than Alexandra Brooklyn about the great John Cassavetes soon. Uh, we'll be talking about a woman under the influence and one of the great American artists of the 20th century and, and his work on film. And another one coming out soon with Jesse Walker from Reason Magazine talking about the legacy of Angelo Codevilla and uh, right-wing class warfare, so that'll be good. And in general, you need to make sure that you're doing whatever it is people do to support podcasts, um, writing little mini Yelp reviews on iTunes and that sort of thing so that we can, uh, we can get Manifesto you know, onto the iTunes charts or... Uh, the billboard charts, whatever charts are willing to take us, we'd be happy to be on. So lest you think that the reason we don't plug this podcast is because we're above such things, nothing could be further from the truth. We're decidedly <laughs> not above such things. We just, just disorganized. We're disorganized. It doesn't occur to us. We start talking. Um, so... Speaking of, if you're an organizational professional and you want to you want to chip in that way, let us know. Um, but uh, we we appreciate uh, the support we've gotten. People who have sent emails that we haven't responded to yet, I'm horribly uh, ashamed of my conduct in that manner. I'm not letting Phil off the hook. I'm just speaking for myself. <laughs> When I say that it's inexcusable, I mean that seriously. Yeah. I read all of the emails. I compose responses in my head. And anyway, <laughs> this has gone on far too long. So, um, you know, thank you if you've written. We will get back to you. Hmm. Joey Keegan, it is great to have you on. I should say, I think that, um, I think that this might be one of those installments where 
we have to to not go long on the manifesto because the art there's a lot to talk about with the art here with this guy i'm gratis i mean there's a lot to talk about with the via also but there's really a lot to talk about with the art so uh quickly one of the the two you say why you chose each of these i hadn't read either of these before this the via i'd never heard of before seems like an absolutely extraordinary character i mean a, a an aristocrat an aristocratic reactionary of uh the purest sort and uh grade i i know but i hadn't read this story so phil where did this come from the authentic reactionary from 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 Joey, uh, both of these actually. Well, both um, of these from Joey. Yeah, except yeah, he, he he had told me like a year ago uh, that I had to read the Grade, and as soon as I read, I was like, "Oh my god, we have to do this! This is incredible." Um, I'm also just you know, frankly, Jake, I'm I'm just tired of your ignorance of classics of J- Yiddish literature. You know, just uh, so yeah, we're fixing to learn you, Jake. Yeah, you know, I just figure. You know, no, I had assumed uh, obscure Colombian reactionary, it sounds like. Um, it, you would you think, know. I mean, I do have one of his books, which I had started and then I was in Spanish because uh, he's not really translated. Um, but he's a... Uh, <laughs> so no, in real aristocratic fashion, he deliberately avoided writing for a mass audience, right? He was... yeah. Like his first book, he just like circulated among friends. He's got this aphoristic style. Um, but like, so Joe, you picked him, and I think he's actually a perfect pick for the um, for the Grade. And um, why did you why did you pick him? How did you come come to him? Well, so yeah, initially, right, um, I had sent the 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 Heim Grade story to Phil, being like, "Man, you got to read this thing because it had existed in." I think it was published in like a, you know, Treasury of Yiddish Literature or something like that in like the 1950s. And that was the only, and then there was like another translation that was made in like the 1980s, maybe, but like very, you know, limited distribution. And then Mosaic Magazine published this, uh, it was the first translation of, of, of the full text, right? The 1950s version had a bunch of stuff that had been excised from it for some reason. And so it wasn't the complete text. The 1980s one, I think was updated, but you know, still maybe had some stuff that was missing because it was relying really heavily on the on the first publication. But this was the first one, apparently, that was like the full story. If you can call it a story, I think we should talk a little bit about its form. Um, uh, but the full piece, you know, translated from Yiddish into English. And I was like, man, you you know, Phil, I I can't imagine a world in which you don't love this thing, right? It, it It's just such an extraordinary piece of literature. And then I was thinking about like, all right, what what would I what would I match this with? Um to try and get to some of the same themes uh, in a slightly different way. And, and this essay uh, by Davila was sort of occurred to me. Um, and it occurred to me at first because, you know, Davila is, this, is, is a Catholic thinker and he's always trying, he's always thinking about, you know, the relationship of sort of history and culture and, um, and politics to uh, something like, you know, eternal unchanging truth. Right. Um, which comes up in the in the Grata piece, and 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 I'd thought that they would be harmonious in one way, and it turns out that I think they're harmonious in an entirely different way, um, uh, namely a sort of thinking through of the question of reason, um, you know, what what's the responsibility of a thinker in a in, in a given time, so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, this this 
I think I stumbled upon both of these both of these pieces around the same time. I mean, it was some, somewhere in like the early 2010s or something. Um, both of these kind of fell into my lap. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I'm always on the hunt for like weird, brilliant little pieces of writing that nobody else seems to be paying attention to. Um, as kind of a, you know, in, an old punk kid or whatever, I'm still, uh, you know, it's like doing record collecting in a different way or something, you know, and, um, and both of these struck me as like, you know, sort of secretly some of the, some of the best uh, writing of, of, of the 20th century. Um, but, you know, woefully underappreciated, especially the Grotta piece, which I think is just an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. Um, what would you say about the uh, uh, Davila? Is that how you say his name? Um, I think so. It's yeah. got an accent on the A, so I think it's Davila. Mm-hmm. What would you say about the Davila to somebody unfamiliar? So to introduce him and this essay, this aphoristic or epigrammatic essay, The Authentic Reactionary, Joey, how would you introduce that? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I, I, it, I think it is, it is a work of somebody who's desperately trying to figure out a way for a person who thinks very deeply to avoid the problems of to avoid a, a couple of different problems of, of, of political engagement um, and the kind of philosophical problems that those problems of political engagement represent. Right. So he he characterizes these these two different sort of common attitudes in the piece. Right. One is what he calls the um, uh, the radical, radical progressive. progressive. Yeah. And the other one is a liberal progressive. And, and, and it's, right, it's, it's clear to me that what he means by these things is it's not, it's not that one of these is like the left or the right or something, right. But that either left or right contains both of these tendencies. The radical progressive says something like, um, you know, history imposes necessity upon us and what it means to, you know, to engage properly with um with the conditions of the age is is, is to ex- is to say something like well that necessity is itself an expression of reason we have to just go you know go with what history has sort of given us we are we are forced mm-hmm. into certain types of positions and this is ultimately good so something like a, i don't know this would be like a really um a sort of orthodox marxist approach or something or, yeah. or, or on, on the right though, though like in a weaker student, sense it's also sort of like it's that sort of like um you know, like get with the times. It's 2021. You can't believe sort of that anymore, right? That there's a sort of course of history that um, history has its own sort of inexorable force, and that sort of moves us correctly forward, right? It's current year. Be on the right side of history, yeah. or whatever. I mean, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. But then there's, you know, on the right, there's kind of this Spenglerian accelerationist thing, too, which which has a yeah. which is it expresses a similar thing in, in, in a different direction. Right. Some, you know, something like uh, the only way out is through you, you simply yeah. have to sort of, um, uh, you know, succumb to the, the, the pressures of history as it's mm-hmm. given to you yeah. and sort of march resolutely forward. There's nothing you can do about it, so on and so forth. Um and then the, the the liberal progressive is one that kind of stands athwart history, yelling "stop!" in right in any way that that might happen to be. So he kind of characterizes this as a, a sort of revolutionary attitude. Somebody who well, looks I wouldn't at say the, 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 I, I, so he says that the 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 liberal progressive is on the side of freedom, right? 
liberty. So the radical progressive thinks that history has its own course, but the liberal progressive is um, history is the process in which man realizes his liberty. Man forges his own history, imposing on nature's the errors of his free will, right? That's so that, reason. The li liberty is the realization of reason, or reason is the realization of liberty for the, right. the liberal progressive as opposed to the liberal or the radical progressive who uh, thinks in the kind of more uh, materialist terms of, uh, of necessity. But in the broadest sense, right, this is uh, about the relationship that certain kinds of distinctly modern, you know, it's a kind of typology of the relationship of modern politically engaged people of some sort, or I shouldn't even say engaged. That's the wrong. It's a typology of political consciousness in relationship yeah. to history, because yeah. it's not about activism. It's about the consciousness that you're stamped in because the current year thing is a perfect example, right? Like the current year, current year for anybody who doesn't know refers to the kind of a, a mocking way of referring to the kind of, hyper presentism that you get from people who are incapable of believing that anyone ever thought differently than they do at the present moment about any number of issues that are constantly undergoing radical change. Um, right. And then the reactionary is a, is a, is the character he's sort of defining in negative terms, initially, you can see it being built in terms of... Let me just read that opening paragraph, by the way, because yeah. I think to get a sense of his style is probably worthwhile, right? So this is the beginning of the essay. <clears throat> the existence of the authentic reactionary is usually a scandal to the progressive. His presence causes a vague discomfort. In the face of the reactionary attitude, the progressive experiences a slight scorn, accompanied by surprise and restlessness. In order to soothe his apprehensions, the progressive is in the habit of interpreting this unseasonable and shocking attitude as a guise for self-interest or as a symptom of stupidity. But only, but only the journalist, the politician, and the fool are not secretly flustered before the tenacity with which the loftiest intelligences of the West for the past 150 years amass objections against the modern world. Complacent That's disdain. I mean, it's what, only <laughs> the journalist and who else? The politician and the fool are not secretly flustered before the tenacity with which the loftiest intelligence of the West for the past 150 years amass objections against the modern world. Yeah. I mean, that's a remarkably current feeling critique. Yeah. Also. I, I know that there's a pedigree, uh, but... Mm. And then yeah. the final line is, complacent disdain does not, in fact, seem an adequate rejoinder to an attitude where Goethe and a Dostoevsky can unite in brotherhood. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you raise the issue of style, Phil. I mean, I think that that's one of the most obvious things about this essay is that he's just an extraordinary stylist. Um, and especially, you know, we'll talk about this more, I imagine, but as you sort of work towards the end, right, these, these images, these, he, he, he he seems incapable kind of, or, or, or unwilling to write about this reactionary in a way that doesn't involve 
you know, these beautiful, this beautiful imagery about ascending to the heights and looking over, um, looking over like a vista and things like this, right? It gets, it gets really dense with imagery towards the end. But yeah, I mean, this thing is just a marvelously well-written uh, short essay. Yeah, it's distinctive um, and it's puzzling at first. So it forces you to, uh, it, it forces you to, you're conscious of its language and its style in a way that's, not you know, that I think is deliberate, but it's sort of it's teasing out what it's getting at. And listen, I've been thinking about reactionaries a lot lately. I just depending on when this episode comes out, I just finished writing something about uh, Curtis Yarvin, better known as Mencius Moldbug, who's the founder of the kind of neo reactionary movement, mm-hmm. and who after what's that well joey was just at the national conservative conference uh and actually did some fantastic dispatches for the point um i I had the opportunity to meet and hang out with curtis yarvin who's actually a really delightful guy so he was at the first uh i was at the first national conservative conservatism conference whatever that was 20 19 or something and he was there as well um i was supposed to write something about that which never happened but uh um but yeah but i've been thinking about the nature of um reactionary thought and what it is to be a reactionary because i've been writing this thing about yarvin whose great hero is uh thomas carlisle uh kind of arch reactionary writer but um but, the, you know, look, I like when I was in high school, I always kind of thought of myself as a reactionary in a way that you can't even discuss anymore because it's also strictly political now. And it all feels like it has this very imminent, um, like important political valence. But um, I just thought, like, oh, the art I'm attracted. I thought of it in both aesthetic and in character characterological terms like ah man is devilish you know and if you really (laughs) think man is devilish there's aesthetically emotionally uh morally a kind of there's a reactionary temperament to that you can't really you can't talk about any of that anymore without it being immediately swallowed up by the imminent political question, the relationship to the far right, etc. But, mm-hmm. um, but this historical character of the reactionary is one dimension of it that doesn't relate directly in the way people want it to, to these political questions. Like, so for instance, um, Davila, how do you say his name again? Not Davila. Davila. Davila, Davila um, is not calling for any kind of like, um, there's no political urgency to what he's talking about. This is the farthest thing from trying to found a movement or. Um, nah, he was a rich guy living in his like, you know, lovely little, little home outside of Bogota, you know? Yeah, I mean, he, he mentioned his two, in the very beginning, right, his two models are Goethe and Dostoevsky. 
I mean, these are people who are who are deeply engaged with the world and with its, its you know attendant problems, but by no means are they like easy political partisans, right? Um, and which is which, right? That, yeah. Well, I was, I was just going to say. I mean, one of the things that's you know the the national conservatism thing has been very much on my mind. You know, I was just there like you know two or three days ago is, is when it ended, and so I, I've been I've been sort of trying to work through, you know the exact shape of my sympathies and, and the exact shape of my objections. And, um, and, and, you know, and this essay, I think really helped me to, to figure some of this stuff out, right? Because the way that he articulates this thing called a reactionary, just as Jake said, right, it doesn't have anything to do with adopting a certain set of political stances. It's really hard to assimilate the reactionary that he depicts in this thing into any sort of existing political uh, campaign or something like that, right? Like it's 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 unclear that this reactionary is quote unquote right wing. Um, right. I think that would be an absurdity for him. The the disease of the human condition is the human condition itself, and therefore they can only yearn for the highest perfection compatible with the tainted essence of the universe. A restless irony guards his cautious steps through the clumsy and harsh insufficiency of the world. Would you know? That's, I don't know that's the Davila campaign slogan. I don't know. <laughs> I think there is something distinctively right wing about it. Mm -hmm. If you accept a broad, if you accept a broad division between a left wing that believes in the sovereignty of politics and of um, human reason to advance progress through history and a right wing that rejects those premises for uh, typically for religious reasons. I don't know exactly, but, you know, religion being here, uh, another way of saying um, f out of a kind of anthropological theory of what a human being is and what reason can achieve. I, I think that that's a real division. Right? The division between people who say we need to order society in such a way as to fully unleash the potential of human reason as an agent of history is different, essentially different from people who say we need to order society in such a way so as to guard against the predations of um, the human character and to allow people to live out reasonably meaningful lives in anticipation of the afterlife. Those are, that's a, a fundamental division. And I, it seems to me, you, you want to call it like gray orange instead of left, right. People won't know what you're talking about, but there's some kind of dichotomy there that anyone can yeah. recognize, I think. Yeah. No, I, Look, yeah, I, I, I agree. And that, that sense, like that sense of either with the radical progressive or the sort of liberal progressive, um, that he's, that he's talking about, like <laughs> there's a, there's a active sort of shaping role, um, that's going, you know, that's sort of going on. And there's a, there's a way in which, you are meaningfully moving forward. You can, or you can meaningfully, meaningfully move forward and create systems to sort of better, 
man's condition, whereas for for Davila, like modernity is a wreck, and um, the uh, sort of as we progress forward, you actually find less space for the human, right? And he, you know, he writes in this in this essay, history is neither necessity nor freedom, but rather their flexible integration. History is not, in fact, a divine monstrosity. The human cloud of dust does not seem to arise as if beneath the breath of a sacred beast. The epochs do not seem to be ordered as stages in the embryogenesis of a metaphysical animal. Facts are not imbricated one upon another as scales upon a, on a heavenly fish. But if history is not an abstract system that germinates beneath implacable laws, neither is it the docile fodder of human madness. The whimsical and arbitrary will of man is not its supreme ruler. Facts are not shaped like sticky, pliable paste between industrious fingers. <laughs> Another yeah, good representation of his style, the scales on that. Yeah, yeah that, that mm. quote has stuck in my head for, for such a long time from this. I mean, yeah, he says that he says that both of these both of these um, uh attitudes emerge from a misunderstanding of history right and so part of what he part of what the essay is is to try and clarify you know the relationship between history and reason or something like that right which both of both the radical and liberal progressives seem to get wrong um and so a, a, you know a big chunk of, of this end part um is devoted quite beautifully to trying to ex elaborate what history is with relation to what we are and it turns yeah. out that to elaborate that requires like poetry or something. I mean, I don't know how to describe it otherwise. It's, it's... Liberty secretes history as a metaphysical spider secretes the geometry of its web. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just filled with sentences like that. Yeah, I mean, right. Part of what that does is that kind of like the dense imagery that Joey was talking about earlier, that metaphysical spider is establishing a difference in kind between the reactionary mode of thought on the one hand and the liberal progressive and radical progressive on the other hand, which are basically the same. Like the distinctions between the liberal progressive and the radical progressive are familial distinctions, mm -hmm. but they're both just uh, variations of positivism of the idea of a kind of agency in history. A metaphysical spider, right, is uh, some belongs to a different world, a different order right. of things. Well, you know, if you think about like, so to, to do somebody we've talked about before, like Hannah Arendt talking about violence versus power, right? And she's like, you know, power emerges when people come together and discuss and she, you know, uh, you know, do the work of politics in which they sort of express what they want to do and take political, make political decisions and actions. Um, whereas for him, you know, <laughs> each epoch you have these sort of collective, collective freedoms which have been poured out and hardened, right? Uh, and so, and he says, every intention is thwarted if it is not introduced into the principal fissures of a, uh, of a life. Uh, so, you know, you have these moments where, yeah, individual free actions uh, have been done. He doesn't, he doesn't put that much value on, it seems, human freedom or human decision-making in, in the way that Arendt does. And then if you're, like him, sort of opposed to the spirit of the age, 
then you just have sort of futile, ineffectual rebellions, right? Um, where real political action is not actually possible. Yeah, so the, the, the radical progressive says that there is nothing but sort of the pressures of history. The liberal progressive says that like, one must sort of assert against the mm -hmm. pressures of history, the, uh, you know, one's, one's own reason and, and thereby achieve liberty. And he wants to say, I mean, the, the, the radical or the, the, the reactionary position is to say something like, well, there's both freedom and history entangled in a very strange way and, uh, and sort of captured within this sort of dialectical process by which an act conducted in freedom then kind of hardens into a new necessity. And then, uh, and then everything gets weird again. And, and, and so the reactionary attitude is not to really champion either of those things, but to kind of stand back and look at the strangeness of this process of, of the, you know, the, 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 the concretizing of, of human action into these new epics and then the changing of those epics again, whether by chance or whether by freedom or whatever, and to say something like, is this good or bad? <laughs> you know, that, that, that seems to be the, react, the reactionary's interest is in, right, making a judgment upon the thing. And then, and usually that judgment is to say, well, this is bad, but then not to like set oneself against it like, like the liberal progressive might, right? To say something like, well, I have now judged it bad, therefore I will, I, I will free myself from it by means of my reason, but to, to, to live in it, right? To I will do battle in the marketplace of ideas, right? Like he's not interested in that, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, this is another, another beautiful line, right? He says, in the shadow lands of history, man ought to resign himself to patiently undermining human presumption. Man is able thus to condemn necessity without contradicting himself although he is unable to take action except when necessity collapses. So when you're in a position where like hist you know, history as such, right, the conditions that you happen to live in don't, don't afford you the ability to do uh, sort of, you know, great, interesting action, which as it turns out is much of history. It's, he, he talks about it sort of being, you know, strung between instants, right? That there, there are these moments where something happens and then there are these long epical periods where there's just, you know, just the, the, the working out of that historical thing and then another thing happens. If you're not in a, in a position where you're able to do a, do a lot, uh, you just kind of have to sit back and watch it but in the, and then act in the ways that you're able to given those conditions. Um, but not, I mean, and, and not in like a, a sense of like, you know, the act is never really urgent. It's just like, this is what we do as human beings, right? We are given a set of conditions that we face we have to do stuff in the world occasionally because we're, you know, we're, we're, we're a type of creature that, that does things, but that's all that we've got, right? We, we're, we, this dialectic of our freedom as it's sort of locked within the conditions that, that are presented to us. Um, and we, we, we should, we should neither pretend that, that, you know, we have to, we have to love those conditions, nor should we pretend that we can fully free ourselves from them. Right. Have you read? It's kind of. Why do you guys read uh, Younger's novel Ormsville? No, no. So, I mean, this but, but is younger, 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 younger read Davila and loved him. So, ah, I, I, I'm not surprised at all. Um, th this is called the authentic reactionary, right? So implicitly, there's an inauthentic reactionary. So the question is. What is the inauthentic reactionary and what distinguishes them? And it seems to me part of what Davila is doing, which is what 
seems to me strikingly similar to Junger's project is to resist the urge or resist the temptation, I should say, rather, to become a counter-revolutionary, right? Because mm. you have a form of reaction which, in opposing revolution, arrives at counter-revolution, which is, of course, only another form of revolution. And yeah. so yeah. Yeah, yeah. what Junger works out in this novel, Holmesville, that's difficult but utterly brilliant, is this this character of the Anarch, who he opposes to the anarchist. An anarchist buys into a an ideological system. He creates a new ideology for the purpose of opposing the state ideology. The anarch withdraws into himself, into the forest in a sense, which is a recurring metaphor in Junger's work. And in withdrawing into himself, preserves his essential dignity and freedom because he doesn't allow his own actions to be compelled by the forces he opposes, nor does he allow himself to, to buy into the illusions of the state forces he opposes, that those illusions being that man is capable of creating some kind of perfected political system. So that is what it seems that's the authentic reactionary position is not to try and overthrow the new progressive regime, but to withdraw into a position of kind of interior judgment and observation that reserves what's authentically human so that it can be reasserted at some point. Well, he says this, the, the reactionary escapes the slavery of history because he pursues in the human wilderness the trace of divine footsteps. Man and his deeds are for the reactionary a servile and mortal flesh that breathes gusts from beyond the mountains. To be reactionary is to champion causes that do not turn up on the notice board of history. Causes where losing does not matter. And then later, uh, the goal is, it is to find sleeping certainties that guide us to the edge of ancient pools. The reactionary is not a nostalgic dreamer of a canceled past, but rather a hunter, a hunter of sacred shades upon the eternal hills. Um, I mean, yeah, but to come back to the National Conservatism Conference for a second, like I don't know exactly mm -hmm. who's... I saw that Hawley spoke, I know that Rubio spoke, and it was a lot of like masculinity stuff you know i tend to think that masculinity is actually important and that uh femininity is important even if they're in absolute and that like but 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 do you think that josh hawley is going to save our notions of masculinity i think that those notions i think we're well look i like certain things about hawley where hawley is good is on antitrust stuff i think he's been very good and um mm -hmm. i like some of Rubio's industrial policy stuff. But I th that's what I saw this year, and I didn't read all of it, struck me as real Nostalgia Act stuff in a way that is uh, packaged for culture war. Like, if you want to do something about, you know, the atrophy of masculinity, you need to make work purposeful. Like, and you need to create a society in which there are purposeful orientations for human beings to, to live out their lives. It's not something that you bestow through the right buzzwords or by talking, you know, like it's not discursive. And to make it discursive, 
is sort of to fall into the trap that I think um, Davila is talking about to some extent, which is like to think of it as like, ah, it's how we talk about masculine. No, like actually right. the material substrate to this that's important. Well, and, and well, to the, you know, benefit, uh, I mean, j- j- oh, sorry, I was going to say to, to Tali's benefit. I mean, he he does he did at, toward the end of his end of his speech talk about like you know, yeah, this isn't just about sort of reasserting um, a masculine ideal, but we need to like bring manufacturing jobs back to the states or whatever, right? But the kind of thing he didn't address was like, well, what does what does manufacturing labor look like in twenty twenty one? Uh, in, 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 in the age of automation and the age of like, you know, the, the, the ever more, de, you know, sort of demoralizing conditions of, of manual labor, like, you know, we have, we have some pretty good, uh, examples of what this looks like, right? You know, there was this sort of, um, uh, new manufacturing thing that happened in Alabama where like a couple of Kia factories were, were built there and, you know, there, everyone, all of these, you know, sort of people who have been talking about the need to bring this stuff back got really excited about it, but the, the conditions of work are horrible. Um, the, you know, people falling into vats of acid and getting crushed in machinery and so on and so forth. Um, you know, the work is heavily mechanized and automated. And so, I mean, one, one must ask, and I sort of found myself wondering this while, while listening to Holly, it's like, it is this thing that you want even practically possible right? Can you actually sort of affect certain types of policies, make certain types of decisions? I mean, even beyond the discursive thing, right? Is it, is it in a politician's power to make, you know, like masculinity, like as, as a, you know, and, and the manly virtues, like really that possible in the conditions that sort of like, like increasingly demeaning conditions of modernity. And I think that like, you know, the, the, the proper reactionary position would be, would be something like looking at, you know, not only the shape of sort of, you know, what, you know, like postmodern industrialism looks like across the world, which is largely nightmarish and, and, and looking at sort of like the, the gridlock and, and insanity of politics or something and say, okay, you know, we, we recognize that there's something that we want. We recognize that it's possible that this is impossible. Um, and instead of sort of worrying about the ability to affect things politically or something like that, we'll, we'll try our best to sort of, you know, we'll condemn the age and try and stand in the light of, of, of the true, the beautiful and the good and, um, not, and not scream about fighting. Right. I mean, that was, that, that was the strange thing about, about the, the NatCon conference is that, you know, for a lot of people who I think try and think of themselves as something I don't know, something close to this kind of reactionary, right? I mean, there were a lot of people there who were, who were really think of themselves quite um, explicitly as like reactionary Catholics of various kinds and, uh, so, yeah. and, 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 and such, right? The entire thing was about fighting. I mean, there's all of this, all of this, uh, you know, yeah. discursively, you know, all of day two, well, day one was all, you know, we're losing and the enemy is, is wretched and they're beating us. And then day two was all these people imploring everybody to fight. And, I, you know, I, I sort of found myself like, like wondering, sitting in this thing, like, why is, I don't know, I mean, I, I guess this, this won't get the donors and, and you know, the, and this, this isn't going to like inspire people to give, you know, $20,000 to your, to your campaign or something, but it seems intellectually honest to say, 
like <laughs> maybe the things that we want are not affect or, or can't be affected politically in the way that we would like, but we can still assert their necessity and we can still, you know, uh, mm -hmm. talk about these things with each other. And, you know, yeah, you just answered but, your own question, man. It's a fundraising event, you know? Like, yes. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you know, one of the things that, to, to go to the point Jake was making, is like, <clears throat> there's some things that you can't get from politics. There's some things that really are important. Jake was talking about sort of meaningful work. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was in your third dispatch from the conference, um, and then uh, you mentioned the panel that you found the most interesting uh, was the one on worker power, right? And they had like a union leader and, and, and you know, folks who were thinking about uh, the position of labor in the modern economy. And you note that attendance was notably sparse, right? <laughs> At the worker power one. Mm -hmm. Whereas meanwhile, the highlight was Rod Dreher defending Viktor Orban's Hungary <laughs> from, you know, what yep. he's calling smears uh, of it being a neo-fascist state. Well, one of the things that Orban has done in Hungary you know, is Hungarian uh, labor has been having a very difficult time. Orban sort of famously passed what the um, they called the slave law, where employers could demand up to 400 hours of overtime and delay payment by th up to three years, right? And so you have like <laughs> a, a, a sparsely attended panel of people at least thinking about like, you know, <laughs> if we care about these sort of old, old virtues, how do you actually instantiate that within the modern American economy, right? Um, and then, you know, the highlight is somebody, you know, and they seem to like Orban because of the, the things that sort of punch progressives in the eye with, and, and it's a, it's a state that has no, no real concern. Um, and then for, the last for, thing of the day, you know, right, workers, was, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a horrible, you know, on that sort of stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it, so it was, it was, you know, like, yeah, Rod Dreher, um, who, yeah, right. His impassioned defense of, of Orban as somebody who's fighting against like, um, I don't know, like, uh, transgender stuff and against, um, uh, you know, sort of liberalism or whatever. And then you had J.D. Vance at the very end, who whose speech was titled The Universities Are the Enemy, and who uh, yeah. is speaking to a room of largely very educated people about, about how everything bad comes from the university without actually addressing at all the, the sort of structural questions of the university, right? So, I mean, the, the, the worker power thing, I thought was a really great example of the kind of thinking that you can do when you're like, and the kinds of questions you can take seriously when you're like irrelevant, right? I mean, this is a group of people, they're, the, the party that they're yoked to has lost. And they've been given a great opportunity to sort of rethink some of the fundamentals. Um, but, but in spite, right? And so it's, it occurred to me that, 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 that this might be a moment where like something like this reactionary mindset might be more possible because there's no longer this sort of political urgency. And, and people can, can, you know, think about things that are maybe useless, right? In in a practical sense, but but might be right, but might sort of generate a kind of energy or something like that. Right. They're 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 freed freed from the, the question of, of necessity or urgency. Um, yeah, but the irony of what you're saying is that the reactionary reading of the last century is that they've been freed from that necessity and urgency for a hundred years. 
right? Yeah. The reactionary reading of, of history is that the 20th century Nazism definitely not excluded, fascism not excluded, not just Nazism, but fascism more generally not excluded, that the 20th century is nothing but the march of the liberal and progressive radical views of history, fascism being included in that because it's only another yeah. democratic movement of mass politics. And so therefore participates in the same general theories of history, except right. in a counter-revolutionary mode that liberal and radical progressivism, like the, the real, the thing is like, there's a, a very interesting book by a, a, a guy who I think approaches a kind of reactionary conservative synthesis, a Polish intellectual named Rizgard Legutko who wrote this book a few years ago called The Demon and Democracy, which is like, you know, a, a, a fairly uh, brilliant, um, you know, at times I think, way overwrought, but actually quite brilliant original um, critique of, of liberalism and democracy. And the bottom, the, the kind of most original argument that he makes in the book is that communism and liberalism, far from being the opposed ideological systems that we had thought of from the Cold War, were in fact, you know, like two alternative or competitor versions of the same essential positivist worldview, right? And if you take that Davila uh, split between the necessity uh, of history and the reason liberty of history, like that's exactly, Lugutko talks about this specifically and he points to, um, I forget his first name, Kolakowski, who wrote the three volume um analysis of Marxism and Kolakowski's ledger, ledger here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and Kolakowski's big idea is that the the historical materialism of Marxism, rather than being opposed to the the liberal idea of reason as the expression of liberty or liberty as the expression, they're actually the same thing because embedded in the historical materialism of Marxism is the idea that history is a process of reason working itself out, right? That it's like the Hegelian idea of the soul of the world. And I mean, this is yeah. like lofty, abstract stuff until you realize that in a sense, <laughs> you know, that there's something to that, first of all, and that, and that the, the ability to, genuinely withdraw from this in the way that the reactionaries are proposing it I, to me joey what i'm saying is that it's not compatible with any kind of politics and that's sort of well so this is i mean the line where he says the reactionary is not a nostalgic dreamer of a canceled past i mean <laughs> there's polit i mean there's sort of there's a lot of nostalgic dreamers of of canceled or supposedly canceled pass right now right um we, we we've got to go on to the to the grade um yeah well, wait, wait, one, but, one, one more thing i know i mean to, to to respond to jake really quickly i mean i think that the reactionary is an artist right um mm -hmm. he, he's got one, I mean, one of his one of his many wonderful aphorisms he says writing is the only way to distance oneself from the century in which it was one's lot to be born i mean and, and again I, th I really think that 
the the yeah. style of the way that this is written is one of the best articulations of what it means to be reactionary. It's not about he he, you know, he has another aphorism that positions. I like. Yeah, all literature is contemporary to the reader who knows how to read. Yeah, which. <laughs> Um, the great right. thing, of course, in the reactionary thing, I mean, to mention only one, is that it's a, a fatalistic, right? So yeah. it proposes... This guy lived through incredible political and social changes in Colombia, yeah. by the way. And he was a power, yeah. you know, he was wealthy and powerful. <laughs> and so it's, there's a little bit of a, you know... Um, but then the other I part mean, is, yeah. by making itself, by by putting such strict limitations on what reason can accomplish vis-a-vis politics, it puts itself, it inches closer and closer to the embrace of unreason, right? Which yeah. Davila does not do, but, you know, the, the this is a real temptation among the, you know, this is like the Bronze Age pervert stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Where, or... The embrace among you know, some people I like and respect on the right who are like, yeah, QAnon guys are nuts, but there's, you know, it's like aesthetically um, generative or something like that. And, you know, it's just like, well, you can say that and maybe there's something to that in a very controlled sense, but, or excuse me, but you can't control that actually. Once you start to say, these these forms of like vitalist unreason are the antidote to the the capture and sterility of reason and politics and all that you know it, you'll get burned up by that but uh, yeah we can pick all of this up in the in the art so Gade this is uh, very quickly this is from the translator uh, of this uh, Ruth Wiss. Weiss with, um, I think it's uh, like one. The, yeah. Almost and sh- on the evening I spent in his company, Grade spoke a little about himself, saying that he was never at peace. When he studied Talmud, he felt he should be reading Dostoevsky, and when reading Dostoevsky, he thought he should be studying Talmud. My man, right to my favorite line. Well done. Weiss, <laughs> who translated this, that's from her introduction. What a, what a unbelievable and that's she goes to see him give a talk right and they're at the russian tea room afterwards which is an incredible joint new york that um i think doesn't exist anymore and yeah and that's that's what he says to her and what a line yeah so jake what did you think of this i thought it was haunting and i thought oh i am kaim and this is, yeah. Yeah. this is my I, look. First, I thought I am Chaim, and this is my internal monologue. And I, <laughs> I was emotionally, I captivated is not strong enough. I was, and then I thought, oh, you're a bad person for thinking that because you're transposing yourself onto this story which takes place before and after the Holocaust. And then I thought, and then I thought after reading the Weiss thing, because one of the, so, okay, very quickly, the plot, you have two, uh, two. There's a uh, plot. There's, there's sort of a plot. 
You have these two guys who grew up together in a in a yeshiva in Vilna in Lithuania. In the Musaret movement, which was like an ethical, uh, yeah. uh, it, 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 very it, aesthetic. It complicated, but the most important thing to understand about it for these purposes is that it grew out of the idea that the Talmudic tradition had become too technical and textual, but at the same time, and this is important for the story, was opposed to the, it was an anti-Hasidic movement, which was the great revival movement of European Jews, Hasids being the various followers of the Baal Shem Tov. And, um, and they were in a Musar yeshiva together. Then the protagonist, Chaim, leaves uh, to pursue a, a secular life as a poet. And the story, insofar as it's a sto- story, and Joey, I take your point, we'll talk about whether it's a story or not. But insofar as there's a plot, it concerns these three run-ins that they have after this. Three random encounters on the street in which every time they pick up the same debate that they were having since their youth when Chaim, the protagonist, left the yeshiva and Hirsch judged him very harshly for having abandoned God's law, Hashem's law and the covenant and going to pursue the, the wickedness, uh, temptations of secularism. And just quickly, the thing I wanted to say that Wise says in the introduction, she makes this point, is that there are three jumps in the story. It goes like from 27 to 37, then from 37 to 39, and then, importantly, from 39 to 47. And the point Wise makes is that when it, jumps from 39 to 47 and you have the great catastrophe and massacre of European Jewry that Grade deliberately does not dwell on this in the exposition and afford it an overly large place in the history of the Jews. So it's not a story about the Holocaust. It's a story about... um, it's a story an, about an argument that continues. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they just pick up the argument right back. And it's important. So what, after how, after how the holiday. what is the argument? What are they arguing okay. about? So when they, they, they first meet each other um, and, you know, and there's, he's like, how are you? And among a Musarite, like, it's not, that's not just like, oh, hey, how you doing? But like, what's the state of your soul, right? And, and, and Jewish practice. Um, and Rasener, you know, do you think that by running away from the yeshiva, you have saved yourself? You surely know the saying among us, whoever who has le- learned Musar can have no enjoyment of his, in his life. Chaim Vilner, you will remain a cripple. You will be deformed for the rest of your life. You write godless virtue, verses and they pinch you on the cheek for it like a hater child. Uh, and then, I mean, th- th- there's some amazing rants, but he c- kind of goes on talking about how, you know, he, he's... He's traded in everything that is important, uh, uh, you know, our tranquility of spirit for what? For lusts that you will never satisfy, for doubts that you will never resolve, no matter how much you suffer. Your writings will make no one better and will make you worse. I have heard that your pamphlet, your excuse for a book is called Yes, but I tell you no. Do you hear me, Heim Vilner? No. But the, the thing that he says, and like what <laughs> Phil just said captures part of it, which is the harangue. 
But the thing that yeah. doesn't capture is that it's brilliant and compelling. So the yeshiva student, his argument against secularism is both sort of vicious and a harangue and also uh, brilliant. And he Smart says, as hell. That, he's, he, yeah, he's giving them, he's giving him an incredible argument. Like when you, when you read the different stages of his argument, it's, he's not, you know, he's not, he's not crippling the opposition because he's the author and he can make them sound stupid, right? Like you feel like, you feel like everything that he's saying is the most powerful things that haunt him, uh, you know. So I am, did not go through the camps and, yeah. You well, know, he the, fled to the Soviet Union. He didn't think, he, he didn't realize what was going to happen and then lost, lost his family. Right, right. Um, but Hirsch did survive the camps. And yeah. is well, it so, Hirsch? There's a, there's a very important bit where they see each other when the Russians are there, right? Right, right, Before, before. And, yeah, so this is sort of yeah. the mid-period. And, and they're, they, run, they run each other in line and they're these Red Army soldiers Wellheim, Hirsch said to me quietly, are you satisfied now? Isn't this what you wanted? Um, and he says, um, uh, and his response is, you know, Hirsch, I bear no more responsibility for all this than you do for me. Uh, uh, the, the main character, who's obviously based on Grade, is, um, uh, you know, was like a leftist. He wasn't a communist. You know, he's like, I, I don't, yeah. And then the rabbi, he shook himself and dealt out a few sharp cutting words, seeming to forget his fear. You're wrong, Heim. I do bear responsibility for you. He took a few steps back and motioned sternly with his eyes at the Red Army soldiers, as if to say, and you for them. And yeah, that's the only period during the war. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a short little scene, but yeah. Anyway, sorry, you were saying, and then, and then after the war. <laughs> no, Joey, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say this, you know, this this little passage in which the thing that Phil just read, I think it's the short, it's the shortest, like, you know, the, the story is divided up in the chapters. That's that's part two. The shortest one of the entire story, and yet probably one of the most powerful. Just that one little scene about, you know, yeah, I do bear responsibility for you and 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 you for them, right? It's it's it feels like something what 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 you know what Jake was explaining about like the sense of uh both you know, sort of Marxism and liberalism and fascism or whatever, like all, all of the different problems of modernity coming from the same root. And Hirsch seems to be sort of looking at it and saying, yeah, you're all the same thing, right? That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying they're all the same thing. You delude yourself with the idea. And they're all the same thing. And look, this is a, a very, very, very Jewish story. Uh, because it's not culturally Jewish. I mean, like, it's Jewish in its conception of the relationship of Jews to each other and of their relationship to God, which is all one thing, right? Like, the, the peoplehood of the Jews is, uh, from the beginning of the Torah to the present, like, is the thing. And I, I'm trying to think of how to explain this. And like, so what Hirsch is saying is part of what he's saying that's so powerful. 
So one of the things he said, I can't remember if it's Hirsch or, or one of his yeshiva students arrives at one point and he says, would you have risked, he's a, talking to the secular poet now, Chaim, would you have risked your life for your writing as for a Torah? And I, it's hard to communicate like how powerful that is because you have to read into that line the connection that the secular poet maintains to the Torah that he both wants to maintain and wants to sever simultaneously. So yeah. he wants to be bound to the covenant with God, which is through the Torah, while escaping it at the same It's part of what's so unbelievably powerful about the story and, and, is and that's worked out even in like the way that he sees the world. So there's this wonderful bit where it's, he's in Paris after the war and he's on the metro. And there, he's describing – he's looking at the people in the metro. Uh, and there's these wonderful descriptions. One woman rouged and powdered sat motionless staring at one of those woolen threads as though she were watching her life unravel. Um, and then after this like rich description of you know humanity packed together in this, in this train, he says – the ardor of the clinging bodies reminded me involuntarily of the silence during the daily synagogue recitation of the 18 benedictions. I glared into the faces of my fellow passengers as if willing them to disavow my simile, but none of them paid any attention to the rude foreigner's challenging stare. This annoyed me even more. I felt I had violated a sacred memory. And it's like that attachment, the, the attempt to sort of transpose that sort of sacred and communal feeling onto a secular thing and then the rejection of that simile which he feels is a violation at the same time like you can feel that this is a kind of turmoil in his own in his own soul that he'll never never really resolve and he sort of later says as much to to Resaner. yeah yeah and it, it becomes a retort right so so hirsch is constantly telling this character heim like you want less of the of the mitzvot you want less of the law you want less of the torah and, and, and Haim's response to him becomes, no, we actually, you know, I'm in the position of having a double burden, right? I want both the, the Jewish tradition and all that comes with it. And then also the secular thing. And, and, and he's, and he feels the, the overwhelming and extraordinary tension of trying to maintain both of those things, right? Both the weight of the traditions themselves, but then also the struggle to try and balance them or to harmonize them or, However, you'd articulate yeah. it, right? It, it becomes a it becomes a, a, a task that is doubly burdensome. But the thing is that Chaim, it's not as if very observant Jews do not have any um, activities in their life. How to put this? I was going to say outside of the Torah. They would they would say that's not true. They would say everything they do is related to the Torah. But the the sacrilege from Chaim, right? as Hirsch sees it, is not just that he left the fold. It's that he left the fold and embraced a new idea of, uh, like, man's nobility in the world. So there's this incredible yeah. scene when they get off the metro in Paris where Hirsch, I wish I knew which building it was, but but uh, not Hirsch, excuse me, Chaim points at a building that has some French poets and, and revolutionaries on top in, of it. Enlightenment figures, yeah. Enlightenment, exactly. Enlightenment figures, and he's basically saying, you know, you, Hirsch, 
you say that only in the service of God are, are people capable of transcending their own pettiness and vulgarity and, and doing great things and doing selfless things. But look at these monuments, right? Look at these monuments up here. These are monuments to great men who were roused to their greatness by secular visions. And that's the real sacrilege. And let me, let me read one passage. So yeah, this part is incredible. This is right after, um, right after that has happened. And Hirsch says, I think this is right after, excuse me, but, but this is at some point where Hirsch is like responding to that general point. And he says, do you know why they weren't able to become better? Because they are consumed with a passion to enjoy life. And since the pleasures of life don't die down on their own, they breed violence, the pleasure of killing. As for us, they've hated us from the start, they being uh, Gentiles with the the, that passion, uh, because we came into the world saying that certain things are forbidden. As soon as we issued the first prohibition, thou shalt not murder, they became our enemies. And once they themselves took over that commandment, it swayed some of them, but the rest hated us all the more. And that's why they talk such fine talk, because they want to fool themselves into doing fine deeds, only it doesn't help they aren't satisfied. They are satisfied with speech making. That's how they soothe themselves because what they most care about is having a system. The nations of the world took from the Greeks their desire for order and for elaborate systems. Um, and uh, I mean, this relates to like one of the kind of oldest divisions that gets picked up. You know, Nietzsche picks up on this, but the division between Jewish covenantal and Mosaic law. And the Greek conception of yeah. life, which are these, this fundamentally opposed, totally opposed. And, you know, funny enough, Mosaic, which is related to this other thing called the Tikva Fund, has a, a guy uh, associated with it. I think his name is uh, Joseph Soloveitchik, who's a rabbi. He's quite brilliant guy. He does this kind of like Torah commentary and writing for them. Anyway, he's the grandson of Rav Soloveitchik, whose Chumash I have on my desk, his uh, Torah commentary, and Soloveitchik, one of his great themes is like, the Greek conception is that you approach transcendence through aesthetics. But the Jewish conception is that you, the only approach to, that, that the approach to transcendence through aesthetics is idolatry, right? Which is the Greek worldview. And the Jewish worldview is that the the only form of transcendence is through uh, through the Torah, through the law, and through the covenant. And um, I don't know. I'm ranting, but I I had a lot of uh, there's a lot. Well, and it's also I mean this it, it relates to to the Davila because you know I mean one of the things that's happened is after after he survived the Holocaust, right? And and in this Heim you know, has escaped, but uh, Hirsch was in the camps, and he was heroic in the camps, right? Like, that's made very, very clear. Um, and after that experience, Hirsch starts reading all of these books that he'd avoided before, right? The great works of literature, right? And 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 he says, um, uh, all my days, and, and, and he sort of gives in to the criticism uh that Haim had had 
had leveled earlier, you know, that he was afraid of looking at the world. And he says, you know, it's true. All the days of my youth, I kept my eyes on the, on the ground to avoid seeing the world. Then came the German. He took me by my Jewish beard, yanked my head up, and ordered me to look him straight in the eye. I had to look into his evil eyes and into the eyes of the whole world. And I saw, Heim, I saw, you know what I saw, everything we lived through. Now I can look at every form of idolatry and read all the forbidden texts and contemplate all the pleasures of life and none of it will tempt me anymore because now I know the true face of the world. You think I don't know the world and that I dreamed up a black lie about it. Oh, Reb Chaim, turn and repent. It's not too late. Remember what the prophet Jeremiah said. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Um, and, you know, it's, it's that it's not, you know, it's not ignorance. This is the true face of the world. This is what all of your sort of like enlightenment learning has built to, right? And that's why, having seen it firsthand, He's, he's no longer tempted by any of it because he feels he's seen to the core of it and that this is where it goes. And this is what happens when you erect systems of morality according to pure reason. Yeah, man, that passage is just unbelievable. <laughs> like, just like absolute, absolute gut punch. I mean, there, there's, a, there's another part where, there, you know, in this, I mean, this, this big screed, Hirsch's big screed here in, in the middle about where he's, con, you know, condemning modernity is, I mean, it's extraordinary because it's so much of it seems right. You know, like if a man has no God, why should he listen to the philosopher who tells him to be good? The philosopher himself is cold and gloomy. He's like a man who celebrates a marriage with himself. (laughs) It's amazing. And and so so much space of the story is given over to let him sort of develop this, this, you know, amazing impassioned thing. Um, So there's this other part I want to read about this. He says, for ages, they debated, they talked and they wrote. Does duty to nation and family come first, or does the freedom of the individual come before his obligations to parents, wife, and children, or even to himself? They deliberated and concluded, there are no bonds that a nation cannot break. Truth and reason are like the sun, which must rise every day. Just try to cover up the sun with shovelfuls of dirt. So there came, a, there came in the west a booted ruler with a little mustache, and in the east a booted ruler with a big mustache. And both of them together kicked the wise man to the ground, and he sank into the mud. I suppose you'll say that the wise men wanted to save their lives. I can understand that. But didn't they just insist that freedom, truth, and reason were more precious to the philosopher than life itself? Uh, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and then he says, all right, you know, like, consider these statues. Um, uh, and, the, and the people that they depict, he says, you know, what, what, would, what would these men have said to their grandchildren today if the spirit of life were returned to them? They would crawl down from the niche and strike their stone head against the cobblestones and recite lamentations. <laughs> right. So this this sort of liberation of reason and and, and living you know living according to truth and reason above sort of uh, you know the the things articulated to us in the Torah or 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 just life in general. Right. That becomes the means by which uh, all of the horrors of modernity are, are are unleashed upon us. Right. Right. Yeah, I find it. uh, It's extraordinary. Look, when I said that I felt like I was Chaim, what I meant by that was that um, Hirsch is the stronger voice in my mind. Like I'm Chaim in the sense that I am. I am not a Shiva student or a rabbi, and I do want to create um, writing that 
um, maybe I would try and rescue from a fire, but in, in the dialogue as it plays out in my head, I know Hirsch is right on some level and I'm wrong and I don't know, I can't, I look, Chaim has his points too, but there is something unmovable in Hirsch's position and there is not something unmovable in Chaim's position. And when Hirsch says that the only morality is through the Torah, he means it literally. And this has been a famous complaint about the Jews going back, pre-Christian complaint about the Jews, by the way, uh, was the, the literalism of Judaism, right? And, and so it's one of these classic things where like the anti-Jewish trope it always involves a, a, an antithetical set of uh, complaints. So on the one hand, Jews are overly abstract and, you know, uh, culture of critique and all that. But on the other hand, the older complaint is the, the, the literalism of Judaism, which the, the need to um, only follow these laws in this kind of rote way. But there are two points about that. The first is, if you actually accept that there are things that are outside the access of human reason, what are you supposed to do? Like, let's say you take this critique of modernity seriously and you think, ah, oh, there are things that the, the individual is not capable of reasoning their way towards on their own. Where does that come from? So what do they do in that case? And for Jews, it's the Torah. That's what's outside of human, which is why both, it's why when, when Chaim says, how can you still believe in this after all this evil? First of all, Hirsch says, because I don't have to reason my way to it, but also because in the Torah and in Isaiah, most of all, God is the author of evil. So none of it is outside of God. And, and if you take that seriously at all, then you can, you know, you can't fully countenance the break with that. And Chaim clearly does take it seriously on some level. Even as he makes the argument against it, he's arguing against his own reservations to some extent, it feels like to me. And I'm not saying he doesn't believe what he's saying. But like, ultimately, Hirsch's position is the kind of unmovable position. Chaim has to argue against Hirsch. Hirsch chides Chaim, but he doesn't need to argue against him necessarily. Well, Chaim, Chaim admires, I mean, he describes it as the, the artlessness and wholeness of, of people of faith, and then the heroism of secular thinkers, he thinks, and their ability to live with risk and doubt, right? And there's this kind of incredible bit where, um, you know, and, and Hirsch has this incredible piece where he's like, if you know, I want, like, I want justice like you do. I want you know, history to have been better. And I want, um, I want God's justice, but I want it as a Jew, right? Like if, if, if God could, if the almighty, you know, when the Germans boot was on my neck could have had me trained places with the German, right? I would have said, no, I would have stayed in my position and said, thou hast chosen me. Right. But then, uh, Haim replies back, you know, against this sort of stark division, he brings up this, these two people who, 
who saved Jews, right? One motivated by a sort of Christian sensibility and the other an atheist, right? And asking him, like, what if they were here listening to you sort of condemn the world and the values that led them to risk their lives for Jews? And he says, um, uh, you, know, where, you know, where in the world is there a corner for these two old people? You drive them out into the dark night, right? Um, uh, they didn't, you know, uh, what, will, what will the Jews they rescued say about you driving off their rescuers? Do you intend to pluck them, the righteous among the nations, out of the category of the Gentile and put them in a separate class? They didn't risk their, risk their lives that Reb Hirsch Resaner, who hates everyone, everyone, could make an exception for them. And then he says, you know, like, what you asked me what changed for me after the Holocaust. What has changed for you? Reb's faith has been strength strengthened, right? Um, and, you know, he just says, you know, it's, he, he actually claims it's, you know, it's stronger than ever. And he says, I think that answer is carping and trivial. I don't accept it at all. Job's eternal question of Sadik Vraloy, of the righteous man who fares ill and the evildoer who fares well, multiplied by a million murdered children, is a question you must put to God. The fact that you know in advance that no answer will come from heaven doesn't relieve you of the obligation to ask the question. If your faith is as strong as Job's, then you must have as much courage as he to cry out to heaven. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will argue my ways before him. Yeah, but that part, this is what I wanted to say, like the the thing that the reactionary can't figure out, the modern reactionary, is where the source of authority is, if not in human reason. I mean, if if it's the church, okay, but there's a kind of tendency in reactionary thinking to like always be peeling back another layer and looking for where it all went wrong. So was it, did it all go wrong with the new deal? Did it all go wrong with, (laughs) uh, industrial society? Did it all go wrong with the enlightenment? Did it go wrong before the enlightenment with like the Socratic thinker? You know, there's, it's like always trying to, to, to go back further. Whereas, inside the moral universe of the Torah for observant Jews. And I, I'm sure there's something similar in the church. There is, that's where the space for the exercise of reason exists. So it's not like you have to give up all of your capacity for reason. Like that argument that Chaim is talking about maybe doesn't take place in the terms he wants it to take place. And I take Chaim's point about like the heroism of the secular figures being in their willingness to accept the risk and uncertainty. I think that's true. But the idea that reason and questioning is silenced is wrong insofar as within this moral universe of the Torah, the whole thing is an exercise of human reason and not just in the commentaries, not just in the Midrash right. or the commentaries on the Midrash or in the Tanya and the exploration of the soul in the Hasidic tradition, but in the Torah itself, they, like the Jews are constantly defying their own leadership. They're constantly defying God. You know, there's a second, there's a second covenant, right? After the flood, 
right? The covenant gets reestablished. So it's not, um, it's not this kind of completely closed off thing. And I, the one other thing I wanted to say that it, I, I struggle finding the language for on some level is like that the thing I said before about how there's this opposition between the Greek and Jewish conceptions where it's like the aesthetic versus the covenantal law. The thing that leaves out a bit is that, and I don't think this is unique to Judaism, but I, I know the Jewish version of it. There is an experience of the world that is in a wisdom, an understanding of the world that is not accessible through either aesthetic or intellectual means and only comes through observance. Right. And yeah. like, it's not, uh, it's not spiritual in so far as that conveys something that's like ethereal or transcendent all the time. It is an understanding of life, of existence, of one's own meaning, of one's relationship to others that only comes through participation in this set of directed steps, this wisdom of the Torah itself, the, the carrying out of the mitzvot that is a, a, uh, a different realm of existence altogether. And, um, and it, you know, can you have that and the secular thing? I, I'm not sure. Ultimately, you, to some extent, yes. Um, but I don't know how far you can go with that. Well, you know, this, this reminds me of um, the, the, the poet um, Robert Bridges once wrote to Jared Manley Hopkins asking him, like, how he could possibly come to believe and uh, probably expecting, like, some sort of, you know, Aquinas-inflected uh, rational answer, and Hopkins' response was, give alms. <clears throat> right, and it's the so same sort of, like, you know, that, that, that it is an active thing, right, um, in terms of, you know, the achievement of faith is not... Um, is not purely something within contemplation, but involves actual sort of physical action in the world, right? Um, and that's, I mean, that's why, <laughs> that's why religions have, have ritual, have sort of a whole host of things that aren't sort of purely, you know, can't simply be re reduced to, to any kind of category that you, you can just sort of intellectually capture. I mean, the, something that I find really beautiful about this story, though, is I, I, I you know, I'm not Jewish, right? And so, the, 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 there's a dimension of this that is kind of lost on me um, about the sort of intricacies of, 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 you know, relationships between, you know, different Jews from different backgrounds, you know, the strangeness of sort of trying to come, you know, sort of like, you know, be sort of one people with all these different things going on, the sort of the kinds of demands that are made upon, upon Jews. So that's a little bit kind of beyond my kin. Um, what I can recognize, though, is like the struggle of faith and the strange question of like, you know, what, you know, what are you supposed to do when you're put in a position of not knowing the truth? And this, you know, there are a couple of indications in the story, right? In the very beginning, um, 
Haim says something like, well, I, I, left the, I left the yeshiva because I was looking for a truth that you guys didn't have. Hmm. And then later in the story, Hirsch says something like, um, he says, uh, but you, Haim, are, are, and you are, uh, are you as bold in your demands on the world as I am in my demands of the master of the universe? When you were studying with us, you were so proud and mighty that you wanted to burrow your way to the very bottom of the truth. You wouldn't accept the notion that there was an ultimate truth we cannot know. So, I mean, that's the, the, the weirdness of it or something is, is that, like, both of them seem to recognize something about the, 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 ungra- the, the, the unimmediacy of truth, right? That they're both likewise put in this position of having to figure out what is true and what to do. Um, and again, as somebody, you know, like I, as somebody who I, I, I don't have these kinds of things sort of like bearing down on my life, right? I'm not, I'm not Jewish. They're both having to figure out what kinds of decisions to make sort of now in order to reckon with this problem of the strangeness of knowing what's true. Right. And so you've got, uh, Haim who goes and he tries to sort of navigate, you know, navigate the, the secular world and make a sort of tie between what he's gotten from his past and what he's, what he's experiencing in the present. And then you have Hirsch who's, whose entire, um, he lives, he lives in this strange, the strange world of, of both like, you know, having this profound no to the world. Right. And then also this profound yes to the Torah. Um, and, having to sort of make sense of what these two, this, this affirmation and negation mean. I mean, the, the strangeness with, you know, the, the other thing about the story, right, is that when they re-meet in Paris, Hirsch is extremely active in the world. In the beginning of the story, Hirsch is, he, 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 right, he yeah. is this kind of like ascetic. He wanders about sort of with his head to the ground. He, you know, yeah. he, he's always very sunken and gray. But when they re-meet in Paris, Hirsch is like, He's 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 boisterous. He's bold. He's exuberant, right? And he's going around and right. he's he's recruiting yeshiva students to send to Israel to bring you know to different places and and right. So in in one sense, has become. Uh, I mean, it, it, what what you get to see in their in their um, reencounter in Paris is is how this you know sort of strangely not elaborated event. Um, of the Holocaust has informed or changed or deepened um, the, the, the positions that they had at the beginning, at the beginning of this view. Right. And it turns out that for both of them, right. They've, they've seemingly become deepened in the thing they already thought. Right. Right. Time says that he has become even more convinced that it's necessary to engage with and to um, have sympathy for the good things of secular life and Hirsch says, I'm even more faithful to the Torah than before. I'm even more, uh, I, I condemn the world in even harsher terms than I did before. You know, I trust God even more than before. But the weirdness of both of these things is that it's obvious that Heim's doubts about what he's doing are even stronger. And and Hirsch, right, is is even more, he's more worldly than he's ever been now. Um, yeah. And, and there, there's warmth that, between them. Just one point on that, because this is something that's like in the internal, uh, intramural Jewish aspect of it, is that after the war, one of the, and it's not elaborated on, but one of the things that Hirsch says is that he's reconciled to himself, like 
he understands what the Kassids contribute now, right? Like, and and actually, yeah, Chaim yeah. then brings that up later. But so there's a line in there essentially where he says something like, uh, you know, I, I a line in there where he says something like, um, you know, I I now can can take this from the Musars and and this from the Kassid, and like the Kassidish thing is to bring uh, joy into. So it's. He's specifically saying, like, I'm not so dour and only. But then, of course, it does appear later that, you know, that maybe he is still pretty dour and down. But just to say that, like, where you're talking about Chaim, there's something unreconciled for him. It's less explicit with Hirsch. But I thought that that was the indication that there's something unreconciled for him also. Yeah, he's and, become ecumenical the, in some strange way, right? Yeah. He wanted to have, but can't quite like make that turn. Like he he recognizes the need for that in a way he hadn't when he was younger, which is why he has this kind of vibrancy and and the sense of mission that you're describing, and he's not so downcast anymore. He he gets that, but he but it's difficult to fully commit to it. And and when, you know, there's a very important moment, because in the early bits of their argument before the Holocaust, there's a real harshness, right, to the nature of the argument. Um, when they meet up again in Paris, right, there's a bit where this this boy comes who's, who's, who studies with uh, Hirsch, and he was in the camps with Hirsch, right? And, like, Hirsch saved his life, you know, Hirsch is obviously, like, a hero to this kid, Um and and he sort of insults Haim, uh, and and he and he says right in front of him, talking about him as if he's not even there. If my teacher hadn't told me that he was once a yeshiva student, I wouldn't have guessed it about him. No one would have seen it in his face. The boy's insult was apparently too much for his teacher. On the contrary, Hirsch answered very softly, "They are still very much in jo- involved in Jewish matters. They are a writer." And um, <laughs> the student sneers. A writer? The student sneered. What does he write? Um, and that's a very, you know, that is a very different Hirsch than we meet from the guy who says, you know, you wrote your pamphlet, it's called Yes, But I Say No. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they've sort of moved further along in their own paths, and yet there's a kind of of openness and warmth uh, that exists here uh, in a way that's changed, that's, that's very important, a kind of commonality that they both feel towards one another despite the fact that their argument remains as sort of unresolved as ever. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is a story, a story of extraordinary power and it, and it would be despite this stuff. But I think one of the most beautiful features of it is, you know, when, when they meet in Paris, they're meeting, right. So their, their previous meetings had been, had been met, right. They didn't like each other really. You know, Heim had some affection for Hirsch and he, and he was like, always a little bit excited when he saw him, but Hirsch never really wanted to see him when they meet in Paris. It is exuberant. Right. And, yeah. and, and it's, they're almost like overflowing with affection for one another. And then they get deep into this, into this dispute again. It's like deeper than ever before. Right. I mean, it, it, it they, 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 um, they dig into the fundamentals of their disagreement in a way that they've never done before. But then there's so many times where, they're touching each other on the shoulder or they're looking into each other's eyes or, you know, and, and just the sense of this being 
a yeah. an, an argument that is playing out in a context of ex- of like of like deep and abiding like love and concern is just I don't know it, it it's it's one of the more extraordinary features of this yeah and the physical story. world around them sort of like bends around the argument after after Hirsch delivers his like incredible rant against enlighteners and <laughs> and all that stuff um the blue of the evening sky yeah. was darkening the stone figures around the hotel de ville had shrunk as though frightened by what Rosaner had said and quietly burrowed back deeper into their niches you know and it's just yeah it's just, it's 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 absolutely marvelous there's a there's this little passage immediately after that one uh where orheim says from our shadowy corner near the empty park i glanced across the street under the electric lamps, the raindrops looked like millions of fireflies joyously plummeting earthward from the sky. I felt the urge to meld into the human stream flowing along the surrounded lighted streets. You know, and yet just like, I mean, that's one thing you, you that's that's sort of easy to overlook in reading this. I mean, because so much of it is this dialogue that happens between the two of them. But the, yeah, the descriptions of the of the set of the setting are just amazing. Yeah. They are, but they're barely there, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's like the metro scene. There's very little, and you know, you brought up earlier, Joey. Like, should we call this a story? And I, I come down on yes. It's clearly not an essay, right? You could call it a narrative dialogue, but I don't know. That's seems to me too clever by half. A narrative dialogue is another word for a story, um, because it's not pure dialogue. Um, they're not disembodied, right? Like it's not Beckett. It's not a uh, dialogue apart from character and, and place. I mean, I think it's very much a story. And it made me think as I was reading it, like, ah, this is what is missing, I feel like, from a lot of missing in the sense, not of missing from any particular piece of writing, but missing in the kind of, as a type of writing from a lot of contemporary realist fiction is like big speeches, you know, like, yeah, which I love and are, are violate the principle of naturalism, right? This is not naturalistic the way they're talking. These it's very Russian novel, very, you know, it's like a Dostoevsky and um, Conrad, uh, but it's not, naturalistic in the sense that they live through these ideas and the ideas don't come out sputtering or dialogically. They come out in these powerful speeches, but you know, I love that. I mean, I, Mm -hmm. I, one of my, it's part of what I love so much about Dostoevsky is like those speeches because they command like the full presence of the human to rise above like the din of their own, you know, not just like the, 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 the most powerful elemental stream of, you know, this like distillation of this thing that erupts in this, in this, this speech, which is like touching something elemental and, stylistically and I, mean, I don't just mean that i love the ideas it's difficult to pull off you have to have the ideas to make it work but stylistically i love it i don't need like the the naturalistic thing would be to break it up more to insert more exposition and to insert kind of 
uh, a minutiae of descriptive detail to give the sense of, but that's like not what's happening here at all. It's more like they're characters on a stage and the scene, the setting on the stage, the scenery on the stage matters. So it's introduced in these powerful moments, like the one Joey just read with the, you know, the, the, the lights that create this powerful ambiance, but now I, I love it. I, I, it made me realize how much I miss that. Um, and how how little of that there's been since probably nineteen twenty or so, you know. I mean, there are mo- there are moments uh, in in Hirsch's uh, speeches, especially that reminded me of Captain Ahab and Moby Dick or something, right? Mm-hmm. It's like these mm-hmm. these bombastic sort of you know like like philosophically deep, um, uh, but like extremely dramatic. And and right. and beautifully right. paced. I mean, like it's this. I, I think that you know, there's there's a lot to be said for the translator here. But I, but you know, the language of it is rich. It's not, it's not just like you know the the. It's two people talking about like you know philosophically very you know significant things. But it, it's not like they're focusing on narrow argumentative things. I mean, it's like it it it's playing out in a in a very sort of you know rich dramatic form. I mean, my, my sense of it, right, so you say it's not a narrative dialogue. Well, I mean, something else that isn't a purely, or, it, 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 or, it, or you say it might be a narrative dialogue, but it's not, it's, not pure, it's not a pure dialogue or something. Something else that isn't a pure dialogue, that isn't a dialogue aside from character and setting and stuff is Plato, right? I mean, this, this is, it's, it's written in a different style, right? But like the, yeah. the, the Platonic dialogues, the origins yeah. of philosophy as we know it basically are written in a form that is not much unlike this. And that was that's one of the things that really like grabbed me about this was that you know this is not totally alien to something that you might find in the republic. You know of of I mean the, I had the, 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 same the, the yeah. It's yeah, the, I mean the, 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 I absolutely had the same thought with Plato. The difference for me and maybe this is in part about the vernacular, not just mm-hmm. the vernacular in terms of the language, but like not recognizing the social milieu, not being familiar with the social milieu of ancient Greece in the same way, is that whereas you read Plato today and it's taking place in a cave of, so you know what I mean? Like all of the dialogues, I mean, are taking place out of time in a sense. You know, they are platonic, you know, and this is no, 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 the, the, the Straussians would disagree, right? They they're taking place and and they indicate their position in the Peloponnesian right, War. They're right. very specifically located, and that and that do is important for the drama and the substance. But do you do read I read them that, that way? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the the Republic is explicitly set in this sense, right? And and um and the Theotetus opens up with Theotetus's body being carried mm. after dying at war. I mean, there are enough of these things that I think that that kind of reading is very very important. Um, but it, it is, and it plays out with a kind of subtlety that might be something like this one, right? Like you said, we don't get a big e- explanation about here is how the Holocaust played out and here's how the characters did it. You just kind of get a sense of like, well, after I left the camps, right? And uh, that's yeah. not that different from the kinds so, of, the kinds of I'm ways convinced. that you hear. Yeah. I'm convinced you, you've sold me. Okay. It's, it is, I changed my position on this. It's, uh. I mean, for me, it just feels more personal. But I, I, you've convinced me that you're, you're right. But I, 
yeah, I don't know. This this feels very personal personal to me, and not just because like it's thematically Jewish, but because it's like this. There are very specific parts of this that have been playing on a loop in my head for years. <laughs> you know, certain like really like personal concerns, like can could I raise my kids to be Jewish in a way that's meaningful and that's connected to this generational covenant, which is also a covenant with God. If I am conveying it to them as a cultural heritage in which the religious observance is something that we determine and delimit based on our reason, right? Like, could could I do you could do that and it might work for a generation but it's exactly what Hirsch says it will weaken yeah. with every generation as th- once you introduce the element of pure reason a, a reason a determinative reason rather than a reason operating within the framework of the Torah and the covenant then you've introduced contingency and eventually the contingency wins out. And I, I, that seems right to me. I, you know, I don't, um, I've, I have not figured out exactly the right answer to that. And I think that there are forms of secular wisdom and of individual reason that are invaluable. And then I'm not quick to, to, give up, but I don't have a good answer to that other part. I don't have a good answer. I, I'll put it to you this way, like to come back to what gives it meaning. The practice is what gives it meaning. And what emerges from the practice is not just a commitment, right? Like what you get from practicing Judaism for me is not just uh, like, oh, I have done this well. There's an emergent property that's not contained within any of the particular acts, which is a feeling of existence. It's a way of being in the world and a feeling about the world and of understanding the world and a form of wisdom that's neither strictly intellectual nor is it strictly aesthetic nor is it spiritual in a metaphysical sense purely like and you only get that through the practice but you have to want to carry out the practice i'm in a position where i'm like more than secular enough where i can see all this stuff in these like tantalizing perfect terms almost where they're not onerous to me because i'm not hirsch because I haven't accepted that because I'm a Chaim and I'm like, I want both, you know, and I do still want both, but I, you know, maybe that's just not possible. Maybe it's the dog who uh, ends up late to both weddings. Mm-hmm. Well, this is fantastic guys. Yeah, this has been great. Uh, this is a wonderful story. You can find it online, and I strongly recommend uh, people do. And we'll post the links in the show notes. It's uh, it's yeah. it's great. It's just great. Yeah, I feel super thankful for Mosaic for making this available again in its full form. So uh, yeah. anybody listening to this should go and read it because it's it's yeah again it's woefully underread. It's extraordinary. 
Um, it's thought provoking, as you can tell. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And thank you guys so much for, for letting me come and uh, talk about it with you. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>